Welcome to HRI's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today I've got Trina Tideros with us, and she leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. Well, great to have you. And I thought today we could dig into an issue which has been very confusing for consumers, for U.S. businesses, and frankly, even for parts of the health industry. And that is around testing. And I think some would call it a a, a testing conundrum. There's a lot of different types of tests out there. A lot of times people don't know what the different types of tests do, what they're for, and how they should best be used. So I thought maybe we could start with a little bit of a 101. Could you walk us through the different types of tests that are available and what their best use is? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it is very confusing. And we've had news in recent days of new tests being given emergency use authorizations by the FDA. And so it feels like there's just so much out there in some ways. And yet in lots of places, it's still kind of hard to get a test and to get results back quickly. So let's talk about what kind of tests there are. Basically, you can split the kinds of tests into two categories. One kind of test looks for evidence of virus in your sample. So evidence of an active infection in you, and we'll call that viral testing. And the other kind is looking for evidence that your body has mounted an immune response to the virus, and that is serological testing, looking for antibodies in you that show that you were infected at least long ago enough to start mounting that immune defense. So when you are looking to decide whether you are infectious, and this has become kind of a source of debate about how long that period actually lasts and is useful to us. But let's just say you're looking to see whether a sample taken from, say, the very, very back of your nose to right inside your nostril to your saliva, there's three different places they look for evidence of this. They take a sample, and you're looking in that sample for evidence of the virus, of SARS-CoV-2. You can do that using PCR, which is the most common kind of test right now, although that might change shortly. But this is the kind of test that most likely if you go get a SARS-CoV-2 test, this is the kind you're going to get. And that is usually done way back in the nose with a swab, way up there. It feels like they're they're going to poke your eye out from the inside. That's I've had it done twice. That's what it feels like to me. And they're looking for viral RNA from the virus in that test. You also have antigen tests, which is a test that recently we have more of coming out, which is looking for levels of antigen like the virus's spike-like protein. You might have heard of that. If you think about the virus, it looks like a ball with spikes coming off of it. So it's looking for evidence of that spike-like protein. And those tests are called antigen tests. And like I said, we will be seeing that coming up. The serology tests are blood tests. And what they're looking for is in your blood, evidence that you have mounted an immune response. Those tests look for antibodies in your blood. And that can tell you, okay, you were infected at one point and you have antibodies to the virus. And so therefore, not therefore you're immune and you can go around without a mask and whatnot. That's not true. We don't know that yet. But nevertheless, it does tell you in your past, you were infected at one point. So those are the kinds of tests. The most likely one is that you're going to get, if it's if it's not a blood test, if it's a blood test, it's a serology test. If it's a up your nose or spitting into a tube, it's a viral test. It's looking for evidence of the virus in your sample that can tell you whether you are infected right now. 
Well, I, I guess the, the question would be is with all these different types of, of, of tests that are out there and they've got different positives and negatives and time frames, could you maybe enlighten us into how we're changing our focus on tests? It seems that at the beginning of the pandemic, the testing was taking you know five to seven days and sometimes longer. Now we're starting to hear this call for we need these very, very rapid tests. So could you kind of walk us through some of that interplay between the accuracy and the time it takes, you know, versus something that maybe is quicker? Yeah. So so the tests that we mostly have, the viral tests that we mostly have are PCR. And so this is a test, if you've had it, you recognize this process. You go to a testing center, a clinician either walks you through doing it yourself or does it for you and sticks a long swab up your nose. Sometimes it's, it's just the inside of the nostril, but the most common is way up your nose, takes it out, puts it in a little tube, and then they send it off to a lab. And some period of time later, you get an answer back, positive or negative. And that period of time could be very quick if you're in a hospital that has a lab right there, a PCR lab that they can do it. They will, maybe you get it back 24 hours later. But more likely, it is going to be three days, four days, seven days, 10 days. I mean, we hear of reports of 20 days waiting for the answer back. The power of this test is that it can detect very small amounts of virus. So if you have just a few copies per mil in your sample, this test is accurate enough and sensitive, it's like good enough that it can detect that. And that is very useful for diagnostic purposes. But the truth is that this slow turnaround time, this period that you have to send it off to the lab and get the answer back, we are sacrificing speed and cost, and we are prioritizing sensitivity. And this is something that has been discussed by, in particular, Michael Minna from Harvard University. He is a virologist who has been going around talking about the fact that really our priorities for tests right now are kind of out of order, that we are privileging sensitivity over cost and speed. And in a pandemic, really what we want is cheap tests that are super fast and don't have to be able to pick up the tiniest amounts of virus. What we really want are tests that are fast and cheap and can pick you up when you are most infectious and then tell you, okay, I got to stay home. And so what he is advocating and others are advocating for is the approval or authorization of tests that are cheap, like under a dollar each, able to be mass produced, able to be done at home that will tell you if you are during your most infectious period and perhaps will not tell you if you have just a tiny amount of virus in your sample. The FDA has put out two emergency youth authorizations recently for tests. Are these authorizations for those very rapid tests? Is that what we're talking about? So first of all, an emergency use authorization is a power that the FDA commissioner has under Section 564 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And what it does is it allows the commissioner to allow unapproved medical products or unapproved uses of approved medical products to be used in an emergency. And this is a public health emergency. And so 
these EUAs have been issued all throughout the pandemic. And in this case, two have been granted to tests. One of them is a $5 rapid antigen test. It's a lateral flow immunoassay. It basically takes samples from inside of your nose, and it's a test that comes in its own kit. There's no special PCR machine needed. It can be done in a doctor's office, you can imagine, very easily. A doctor's office that does not now have to send it out to a lab that has a PCR machine. The EUA in particular is limited to CLIA certified labs that meet the requirements to perform high, moderate, or waived complexity tests, and also points of care, such as patient care settings like doctor's offices, operating under a CLIA certificate of waiver, a certificate of compliance, or a certificate of accreditation. So what we expect with this test, which we are told will be shipped out in the millions in September and 50 million a month starting in October, is that this test will be used widely in workplaces, universities and schools, facilities like prisons, long-term care centers, all these kinds of places. It gives results within 15 minutes. And so this is a step forward. It is not the at-home cheap dollar or under test that we are thinking about when we think about sort of the ideal testing situation where you can test you and your family every single day. It is not that test, yet it should ramp up testing, make it more rapid significantly. The other one that got an EUA is a saliva test. So this is a test that uses spit instead of a swab that has to go up your nose. And so this is a good thing because one of the problems with the swabs that go deep into the nasal cavity is it's very difficult to do those every single day. People do not want someone sticking a swab way up into the farthest reaches of their nose every single day. And a saliva test is more palatable to people who are going to be tested every day. And this particular test was developed between a major university and the NBA, which is testing their players and staff all the time in the bubble. And so because of that, they looked for a test that did not involve this sort of invasive sticking the swab way up into the noses of the players, they looked for something easier and less invasive. The pros of this is what I said. It is that you don't need those deep nasal samples. The other good thing about it is that it's open source. There's a lot of the the sort of making of this kit is something that other labs beyond this university can do. They can just sort of take the instructions and make it happen. And It uses a a variety of components from different vendors. So because of that, you don't have to just use one source for all the materials for this. But it is still PCR. It still requires a lab to process it. It could be cheap, but it's not a dollar a test, most likely. And it's not home-based. This is still a, a, a test that requires a PCR machine. And that is not something, you know, that we have in our homes or are likely to get anytime soon. So those are the two kinds of tests that have been recently authorized by the FDA, and they represent steps forward for sure, but not that sort of holy grail of the you know cheap tests that we all want to be able to do every single day in our home. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to go back. Or I want to ask a question around kind of what I would call the the debates that are going on right now in the public health community around testing. And if you could kind of characterize from what you have seen, what is the central question 
right now in terms of speed versus reliability and how are you seeing that play out both in the you know in the, kind of the twitter sphere and in the in the area of public debate because i think this will help people understand some of the challenges of figuring out the path forward yeah i think testing has been a source of debate since the beginning and i think it's been this steady drumbeat of questions about how best to handle identifying people who are infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so one of the questions has been that every day that you are positive on a PCR test, that you are also infectious on that test. And so you can be positive on a PCR test and not be likely to spread the virus to anybody. You can be positive PCR 100 days after showing symptoms and have had the majority of that period of time be completely or most likely, you know, a threat to nobody in terms of giving them the virus. The period of most infectiousness, public health people believe, and data support is pretty short. It's a few days. It's probably five, 10 days max. And so because of that, there are questions around what should we do with the positive PCR test? The data show from studies out of China pretty early on in the pandemic that the number of days that you are actually most infectious is pretty pretty low. It's definitely not 100 days. It's not 30 days for most patients. And so what public health folks are debating now is, okay, if we have people who are being told they're PCR positive and they are being told that they have to quarantine and yet perhaps they are way beyond the infectious period, what is the value of that? And should we be testing in a smarter way? Should we be testing with daily, cheap, rapid antigen tests that you can sort of spit in a tube, maybe put a piece of paper down there and and wait and get an answer, things like that. Those technologies are out there. They just haven't gotten an FDA emergency use authorization yet. So instead, what we are stuck with right now is a test that is extremely sensitive, almost too sensitive for our purposes of catching people when they are most infectious. It makes those tests in high demand, but lengthy times to wait for the results. And then we are catching lots of people who are way past their infectious period. Now, the other side of that is that public health people say, wait, wait, wait. We do not want to tell people who are positive on PCR not to worry. Oh, you're probably not infectious anymore. Don't worry about a positive test, that that is a terrible message to send. So they are pushing back on this thinking. The other piece of it is, hey, it's still useful to know someone who might have been infectious 10 days ago. It just means we have to go back pretty far to all the people that they've been hanging around with in those in that period of time to find those people and track them and get them tested and figure out who they've been around. And if we start sort of throwing this these values out or these tests out, if they are catching too low loads of virus, then we are going to be missing a big piece of this. We need more information, not less. So that's the debate that I've been seeing on the sort of Twitter sphere that's been going on. I think it all speaks to this need to have a bigger light shown on where we are with the virus, where we are with outbreaks, and the sort of best case scenario is we all are able to test ourselves 
accurately every single day and make decisions about whether we're going to go out and see our elderly mother that day or whether we're, our kids can go to school that day. And we make it based on current information rather than this sort of phased, I might be catching myself days after I was ever infectious, or I might be at the very beginning of my infection. I don't know. This debate is happening because we don't have the testing that we need yet that will help us test ourselves out of this situation, which is what a lot of public health people think we can do. Well, I think you've done a, a great service for our listeners in terms of unraveling a little bit around the, the testing conundrum and explaining the different types of tests and what they can be used for and, and what we may see just ahead in the future. So Trina, thank you so much for joining us on the Next in Health podcast. Thank you. It was great. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.